morning, church. Uh, Todd's message this morning is God wins, God wins, God wins. Many of us love to win, and we have competitive spirits and, and natures. And I know there's a group of guys that play pickleball here in the church, and I, I think some of those guys are competitive. I don't want to mention any names or point anybody out, but two to the two that rises to the surface, their initials are DB and RM. And I know I'm not supposed to say names, but one of them's a teacher, and the other one works for the gas company. So you you kind of you can you can kind of figure that out. Some say, "Hey, I just play to have fun," and uh, then I say, "Why do you keep score?" And then why are you so di- you know dejected when you and bummed out when you lose? Cubs fans have been long suffering. If you're a Cubs fan, you understand. Only three World Series titles: 1907, 1908, and 2016. If you notice here, somebody has left a cub hat on the, the old stand here, and I inadvertently reached in my closet this morning, and look what I pulled out. It's a cub shirt with cubs on it. It's got Harry Carey's glasses on it. And then somebody, this this is a great picture. You can't see it very good, but uh, Mr. Bill Snodgrass made this for me. It's a picture of Wrigley Field, and at the top it says, Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. So I got, I got a little something here for you this morning as well. Well, I, I do have to say that uh, Sullivan, and it seems like Crossroads infested with Cardinal fans. And they often remind me of how many times that the Redbirds have won the World Series, which it's 11, which brings a sarcastic remark for me, so what? You know, that's, that's how I, I look at that. My son and my daughter, they're Cardinal, or my, not my daughter, Steve's got her converted to a Cubs fan, but uh, Diana and Josh are both Cardinal fans as well. But I have to say this, and I've said this to many of you, I... I cheered for the Cardinals in the 60s because they was always playing the Yankees, and I wasn't too nuts about the Yankees. And whether you like the Cubs or not, it was always fun to, to hear Harry Carey say this, Cubs win, Cubs win, and when they did, and it was said, holy cow. And you're not going to be able to see this, but you can hear it. And if you'd like, this is one of my favorite things about Harry Carey. You guys can sing along if you want. Me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks. I don't care if I ever go back and it's root, root, root for the cubbies. It's just one thing we don't win. And it's one, two, three strikes you're out at the old again. There we go. Holy cow. <laughs> Well, I wish, I wish old Harry had been alive when the Cubs won the World Series. Uh, it's, just, it's just been an amazing thing. And now you're wondering, what's this have to do with church? And I say absolutely nothing, but sometimes we have some fun, and that's okay. In the life of followers of Christ, one of the reasons it's possible to go on through all the struggles that we have in life and disappointments and heartaches, because we know that the, in the end, God wins, and we say amen to that. I hope you believe that. I hope that is something that 
is ingrained, embedded in your heart and in your mind that it's it'll get better and and God God wins and we win in the end. But before that, we have to get there and we have to endure and go through this episode that we call life. Before we go to that triumphal ending, however, we may have to plod through some difficult chapters in our own lives. Chapters that the plot is convoluted, it's changed, it's not the way we planned it. Where pleasure only comes in short intervals, where pain is often, uh, it, it forms this rambling paragraphs that go on page after page after page. Dark days, dark sleepless nights, comes to the territory. But through the syntax of suffering, may grate against our earthly ears through the vocabulary, heaven may sound times is beyond our understanding. The story of life does come together in the end. As God's children, we will indeed live heavily at, live happily ever after. That's why I always liked older movies, and the end was always good, but Hollywood has changed all that to where we watch movies now, and the ending's not so good. But our ending's going to be great. You and I will live happily ever after with Christ. No matter what tragedies we have had to endure, God will triumph over those tragedies in the end. And how can we not say amen to that? The book of Esther stands on history's shelf like a condensed version of life itself. Through the fire, God's people hung precariously close in the balance to the end. And and they were almost uh, wiped out, actually, the pending tragedy. But... They survived because God was at the helm, so to speak. He used people like pawns in that whole story. So last message from Esther. I hope, I hope you've gleaned some things from it. You know, like I said, it's taken us a while, but uh, uh, that was what God wanted me to do, and that's the direction we went. Here's a, couple, here's a few scenes of the end ahead of time. To me, to some, all the talk about God winning sounds more like a fairy tale that we think, how can this actually happen? But it's not pie in the sky, and it's not a buy and the buy, buy and buy type of hope. It's a hope grounded in the truth of Scripture. Revelation 21.4, what a, what a Scripture of hope this is. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The first things have passed away. Heaven will be a paradise illumined by the glory of God where joy will echo through the corridors of the Father's house. Sin, is, is, in all its twisted and grotesque forms, will forever be barred from our eternal estate. Can you imagine that? Never be tempted forever. And we, we understand tempting, all of us do. We understand giving in, and we understand sin and the consequences of that in our life and how that affects our relationship all of our relationships, actually, but basically our relationship with Christ. So due to the absence of sin, there will be holiness. Without pain and suffering, there will be perfection. With the final defeat of Satan, our arch enemy, there will be relief and peace. And with our new natures and glorified bodies, there will be unity and harmony. With the God, with God's radiation, His radiating resplendent, light, resplendently light throughout heaven, we won't need the sun or the moon anymore, those luminaries. And with death defeated, immortality will reign and God will be all in all 
1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28. So this sovereign assurance of a happy ending prepares us for the closing chapter in the ancient story of Esther. Let's take a final glimpse at the story after the fact. The final chapter in Esther functions like an epilogue, enshrining the hero in an encapsulated tribute, Esther 10, 1 through 3. Now, King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the accomplishments of his authority and strength and the full account of his, the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So this... When the story began and when the story ends, the story ends with the same king, the same kingdom, same country, the same realm of authority, and the same manner of ruling. But in like the beginning of the story, there had been a major change around the throne. Mordecai had replaced Haman. The presence of evil and corruption and wicked plans is out. Wholesome peace and greatness are in. The last scene informs us that Mordecai had been promoted to second in command and explains why. First, he was great among the Jews. Second, he was in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen. Third, he sought the good of his people. And fourth, he spoke for the welfare of the whole nation. His promotion was unprecedented in the Medo-Persian world. He was a Jew in Gentile country, a country where Jews had officially become as slaves and captives. A comparison of verse 1 and 3 reveal the stark contrast. Verse 1 simply mentions King Ahasuerus without reference to his race. But verse 3 spells it out. It reads, Mordecai the Jew. Why all the emphasis on Mordecai's racial origin? Because it was so surprising to see a Jew in such a high political position within a Gentile kingdom. And it would only have happened because God was in charge. From this small chapter, three potent principles emerge and stand out as we think about our world. Principle one, when God wins, the people he uses are often unexpected. Who would have guessed that he used a one-time gatekeeper? In verse two, Mordecai's promotion came as such a humble beginning. It's kind of like David's ascension to the throne in Psalm 78. Poor shepherd boy, king of Israel. So in using the most unlikely of people to bring about his victory, God brings into sharp relief the greatness of his sovereign power. Here's another example. He took an 80-year-old Jew with a criminal record and through him pulled off the exodus. The list of unlikely recruits in the scripture goes on and on and on. Who would have used a a harlot, a a prostitute to hide the Jewish spies? Who would have used a rebel prophet to spearhead an evangelistic crusade in Nineveh? The Syria of Assyria, their enemies, who would have used a Pharisee and a persecutor of Jews or Christians to pin most of the New Testament and to plant churches, or who would have used a deserter in the foundational rock and to build the early church? Here's principle two. When God wins, the qualities he upholds are usually unpretentious. So when the curtain finally falls on the last scene of Esther, it comes down on a man who stands center stage in the drama, but who bears the marks of true humility. 
Look at how he is described in favor with the multitude of his kinsmen and one who sought the good of his people. These are the kind of leaders, my friends, that we pray that we have in our government as well. The impression you get of Mordecai is that he shied away from the spotlight. He worked behind the scenes, and he did so for the welfare of others and not himself. This is a beautiful incarnation of the truth found in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Nothing is more godlike than occupying the space in loneliness of mind and true servanthood. It's the hallmark of Christ's character. Matthew 20, 28, Luke 22, 24 through 27, John 13, 1 through 15, and Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Principle 3, when God wins the message, he honors most offices universal. So look beyond. He, God honors those who have a vision to look beyond themselves, look, look beyond their own uh, sphere of influence, actually, and look out into the world. The last clause about Mordecai in Esther 10, 3 reads literally, one who spoke for the peace of the whole nation. Mordecai's world was prodigious rather than parochial. It was vast, not limited to the sidewalks and street corners of his own neighborhood. His concern was for the entire nation, 127 provinces, Jews scattered throughout. Many of them, I'm sure that he never, he didn't even know them, but he was concerned for their welfare because the edict that Haman put in effect would have killed them all, actually. The largeness of Mordecai's heart reflects God's heart for the world. His desire is for people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to know his peace, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Unfortunately, like Haman, our 21st century world doesn't honor these principles. It doesn't think like this at all, which creates a struggle between those who would follow God's principles and those who would oppose them. There's a very subtle or a very futile struggle with God's plan now and then. Why does our 21st century world struggle against God's principles? Three reasons stand out. And the first one is this. When the world selects its major players, the criteria are much different. The chosen ones are sharp. They are capable. They're impressive and strong. They look and sound right and fit the model of the successful. Because they, this selection process is used pervasive, it's important to remember God's choice. choices are often unexpected. First Samuel 16, 7. I remember that when he went through uh, all the boys and picked David as the last one, the smallest, the runt in the litter, so to speak, um, to be king of Israel. Two, when the world looks for qualities, they will get a big, get a big job done. The externals get the nod. Those who dress for success, those who have personality, charisma, pizzazz, are usually the ones who are given the next rung up on the corporate ladder. But I, I caution you this before you take that next big step. Remember, God upholds the unpretentious and humble, James 4, 6. And then three, when the world arranges its priorities first and foremost, it looks out for number one. The heart of this world is self Self-protection, self-promotion, and self-absorption. But don't let the egocentric universe exert any 
gravitational pull on you. Remember, God's concern is universal. His message, message reaches out to the whole world. It's just not confined into one people group or race, so to speak. Here's a fulfilling hope for the Christians in God's time. All of this is reminiscent of something that happened in a small hamlet outside of Jerusalem in Bethlehem. It was here that God chose to enter the human race. And the vehicle that he chose to arrive through a young Jewish girl who got pregnant out of wedlock and who became the scandal of Nazareth. I often think about that and how gossip has, is everywhere that you go. I, can you, I can't imagine in those days. God evidently had to intervene or she would have been stoned, actually. But that's how God chose to come into the world. You'd have thought God would have come to Jerusalem through the loins of royalty, but he didn't. He came unexpectedly in his time and in his way to an oppressed people. You might have thought that the birth would have taken place in an imperial palace or some sprawling estate, crawling with servants, but it didn't. There was not even room in the common inn. The Son of God was born in a barn and cradled in a feeding trough that was cushioned with straw. And to whom did the little one come? Simply to Mary and Joseph? To his Nazarene neighborhood? No. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3.16. And those who believe have eternal life, regardless of who they are. So in the end, not only does God win, but we do too. In the end of the book of Esther, God's people emerged triumphant over the forces that sought to exterminate them. The story is full of twists and turns, heroes and villains. It is a story full of intrigue and political power. But most of all, it is a story of God's providential care and of a woman who was willing to put her life on the line for her people. I said this in the beginning and maybe along the way a few times. God's not mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's there. And I think that's the way he is in our lives. We not, might not mention his name, but he's, he's here. He surrounds us. He's in us. No matter how long the tunnel or how dark, it's easier to keep moving ahead with hope as we know there is light at the end, that this is not it, that things will change someday. It will, will get better because we believe in Christ. In his book, Where's God When It Hurts?, my favorite author, Philip Yancey, gives us some illuminating words for times when that tunnel seems too dark, too narrow, and too long for us to carry on, and we want to quit. A lot of times, we want to throw in the towel on God. Instead of increasing our faith, sometimes it makes us even less faithful. He is an excellent writer, and God has used him in a lot of different ways, and his words are truly holy in spirit. Inspired, inspired, and I quote, God has allied himself with the poor and suffering, establishing a kingdom tilted in their favor, which the rich and the powerful often shun. He has promised supernatural strength to nourish our spirit, even if our physical suffering goes unrelieved. He has joined us 
He has hurt and bled and cried and suffered. He has been dignified for all time those. He has dignified for all time those who suffer by sharing their pain. He is with us now, ministering to us through his spirit and through members of his body who are commissioned to bear us up and relieve our suffering for the sake of the head. He is waiting, gathering the armies of good, and one day he will unleash them. The world will see one last explosion of pain before the full victory is ushered in. Then he will create for us a new incredible world, and pain shall be no more. <laughs> wow. And pain shall be no more. What a wonderful, glorious concept and promise. And as followers of Christ, it's more than a mere concept. It is a promise from God Almighty himself. Revelation 21.4. God shall wipe away all tears from her eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. They're gone. God wins friends. Therefore, we win as well, and the victory is ours. Even though some of us go through some pretty rough times, um, we hang in there, and hopefully, as you struggle, you reach in, reach out to God, and the Holy Spirit helps you get through whatever that might be, because we're all affected one way or another, even if it's us or one of our family members or somebody within the context of the body of Christ, even our neighbors. There's always somebody suffering. God has put us into their lives to help alleviate that if we can and if we will. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for the people that will watch this and hear this. And I pray your blessing upon them. I pray, God, that you've encouraged us through your word. That even though we struggle, even though sometimes we want to throw in the towel and give up on you, that we stay the course because one of these days we know that it will pass and it will be gone and it will be victory for us. So we thank you for that. I pray for those that are suffering today, Lord, that you just might give them an extra shot of grace to help them through that time and help them to look forward and to see that light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel. I love you, God, and I give you praise and glory. Help us to keep our eyes on you and not on ourselves. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You can see I got my sling off. I can't get this any higher than that, but with Sue's help and all them great folks up at Salton County Community Hospital Therapy, I'll get there. So, uh, And we'll see each other in person. God bless you.